Amen. What a wonderful time of worship tonight. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Genesis 49. Almost to the end of Genesis. Next week, we'll wrap up our study of Genesis and our study of the life of Joseph. While you're turning to Genesis 49, just a couple of reminders. The story of Joseph especially teaches us two things. How God gets Israel to Egypt. And how does God take a small family, starting with Abraham, and build them into a great nation? God is beginning to answer those questions in the last several chapters of the book of Genesis. This chapter can be divided very neatly, if you will, into two sections. The first 28 verses are the prophecy of Israel or Jacob over his sons, declaring, if you will, their destiny, looking behind but also looking ahead. And then verses 29 through 33 are Joseph's instructions again to his sons about his burial and how he wants his, if you will, burial and memorial service to go. I want to divide this up, though, into sort of three parts. I do want to spend a little bit of time on Jacob's prophecy over his 12 sons, but that's not where I want to spend the majority of our time tonight. In this chapter, you will see that God has seven names, and I want to talk about those tonight. I think they relate very well to us and can encourage us greatly in our everyday walk with the Lord. And then I do want to spend some time in verses 29 through 33 looking at the instructions that Jacob gives. Now, something we need to realize here is that as we even sung about, we need to let God define our lives. So, the prophecy that Jacob is prophesying over his sons, called a blessing here, but not your normal blessing as you and I would think of blessing, is really showing the, much of the future destiny for his sons in the land that God is promising to give to them. Even where each tribe is going to be located in the land. Now, Think about that from this perspective. We all know that Moses is the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses was the human author. Think about how the words of Moses, as he's writing Genesis, and he's writing it to the people who are still enslaved in Egypt and who have been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, how what Moses is writing to them can be an encouragement to them because he's writing about the fact that Jacob and Joseph all believed 
so sure in the promises of God that they wanted to be buried in that land. And oh, by the way, you sons of mine, here's where you're going to live in that land. God's already determined that. And here's what you're going to be doing in that land. And here's part of your future in that land. I mean, can you imagine how that encouraged the people in Egypt during their time of slavery to think, wow, God, God is showing us a future, and it's not a future in Egypt. It's a future in his land that he has promised for us. Keep that in mind, especially in these next couple of chapters. Think of it through the lens of you're an, a Hebrew, and you're a slave in Egypt, and you're reading this. How that would hit you maybe a little bit differently even than it hits us. So tonight, again, I want to go through this chapter, but I don't want to spend all the time on the prophecy over his sons, even though there's some interesting things. I want to talk about the names of God, and I want to talk about the last section just as much. Notice again, beginning in verse 1, Jacob is setting forth before his sons the future especially in the resettlement of the land of Canaan. It is a reflection of his confidence in God's promises. If he didn't believe that one day God would take his people, his sons, their ancestors, their children, their grandchildren, back to the land, then why would he be talking this way? The whole reason he's talking this way is he believes God has a future for his people, and it's not in Egypt. It's in the land that he has promised. So Jacob called for his sons and said, gather together so I can tell you what will happen to you in the future. By the way, very interestingly, the words gather together are a military term. That's interesting, isn't it? That when God's people come together, one of the things you and I have to keep in mind, besides many other purposes that God has for bringing his people together, is we've got to always remember that in this world, we're in a spiritual battle. And part of why God huddles his people together is to prepare them and fit them and armor us for the battles ahead and to strengthen us. And that's exactly what Jacob is doing here, even to his own sons. We all need to have that mindset. We're not always to be in battle mode. We're not always to be in that mode, but we always have to be conscious that we are in a spiritual battle and that spiritual warfare is prevalent all around us. And part of why we need to be drawing to God and drawing near to God every day and drawing into one another is because we're in battles and we're in fights and we're in things that count for eternity. And the souls of human beings are in the balance. And what we are dealing with is nothing trivial. We are dealing with the very hearts and souls and minds of men and women. Notice, he says, I'm going to tell you about what will happen to you in the future. How does he know? Because God has revealed it to him. Only God can reveal the future. Only God knows what's going to happen in the future. Regardless of what you hear on television at times and what people say and all of that, only God knows the future accurately and in every detail. 
Even Satan and the demonic world cannot look in or know what the future holds. Only God can reveal and know the future. And so the reason why Jacob can talk to his sons about the future is because God has revealed these things to him. So as he's speaking over his sons, again, he's speaking the words of God, you see. And we know how important that is. Again, we sung about that. You and I have to let God define us. Because as the word of God says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And the things that we speak into other people's lives or speak over them, either is going to bring death or it's going to bring life. And you and I being on the other side of people's words, we know that to be true too. We know people who've spoken life into our life and we know people, people who've spoken death into us. And when they do that, you and I have to learn to brush it off, slough it off, and absorb the truth of God and always come back to letting God define us. He has the last word of who and what our life is going to look like. Verse 2, assemble and listen. Listen attentively. Listen with interest, you sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And he starts with the oldest, Reuben. What can we learn about Reuben? Well, even though he was the firstborn and he had great potential, there was a gulf between his potential and his achievement. Notice Jacob says, you are destructive like water. You are uncontrolled. You are undisciplined. It is important that we learn to be controlled and disciplined. Obviously, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. God wants his people to be self-disciplined. Reuben was never good with self-control. Reuben never learned to be disciplined in his life. And because of that, he made a mess of his life. And because of that, instead of having the preeminence in the family, in verse 4, he forfeited his position because of his sin. You see, again, these things that Jacob is saying to his sons are both looking future, but also looking behind and marrying them together, bringing them together and saying, Reuben, the, re the reason you cannot hold preeminence in this family is because of your lack of character and integrity, you see. Then on to Simeon Levi, same thing. The tribe of Simeon, verse 5, all but disappeared in the nation of Israel. They were weapons of violence. Remember, they were the ones that went down and slaughtered that whole town and all the animals and all the children out of revenge for the rape of their sister. It was a massacre, and it was vengeful. And so, basically, Jacob is prophesying over them that they're going to have to be separated from one another, even their ancestors, because they're not good together. You ever known people like that? It's like when they get together, it's not good. Well, that's Simeon and Levi. In fact, Simeon and Levi are going to be sort of vagabonds even within the tribes of Israel. Again, Simeon, you hear very little about him and his ancestors. And you do hear about Levi, but you hear about Levi in the context of 
the Levites became the priests of Israel, which meant that they were scattered around the whole nation so that they could be in every place to be able to minister as priests. So again, God scattered them so that they couldn't come together and cause trouble. Judah, verse 8, is obviously one of the prime people that Jacob talks about in a positive way. Judah means praise. And notice Jacob says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Sort of a play on words there. This is the greatest of the prophecies in length and in range. It stretches far into the future and even includes the Messiah because we know that Messiah comes through the line or tribe of Judah. In fact, because Judah is destined to be rulers and leaders, that's why he talks and references them in verse 9 as, as lions. Because a lion was the king, the ruler, the one in charge. And that will be Judah. Who dares rouse him? The end of verse 9. Verse 10 is a reference to the Messiah, the one that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. The nations will obey him. And we'll come back to that in a little bit when we talk about the name. Notice that the Messiah will bring in a time, and this will be during the millennial kingdom, that there will be such abundance that Normal, even as we know normal, even good normal, it's way beyond that. Because notice what it says. Binding his fold to a vine. You don't bind your fold to a, to a, a, a vine. That's unheard of. That would hurt the vine, right? And his colt to the choicest vine. He'll wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. It's, it's speaking again about just in hyperbole, this extravagance, if you will, during the time that Messiah comes to bring good things. His eyes will be dark from wine, his teeth white from milk. That's Judah. Zebulun. Zebulun will live by the haven of the sea and become a haven for ships. His border will extend to Sidon. Zebulun will be enriched by the sea trade. They will be seafarers, which is very unusual for Israelites. They're the only tribe that basically always existed by the sea and were merchants of the sea. Now, this also brings up a very interesting thing, right? Acts chapter 17. God even determines the places where these tribes will be in the land. That's up to God. God's the one who sets these tribes in their place. Do you know God still does that? Every tribe, every nation, that's not circumstance or happenstance or by accident. God has put the nations where he wanted them. God has set the borders where he wanted them. God put all 12 tribes where he wanted them in the land. It was no accident where they lived. It's no accident where God leads us to live. God has a purpose and a place for us. Issachar, they were given, verse 14, an agricultural heritage, and they served in that particular capacity all their existence, even up to today. Issachar is a strong-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags 
When he sees a good resting place and the pleasant land, he bends his shoulder to the burden and becomes a slave laborer. He's the hard workers, the laborers. Dan, whose name means to judge, will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Like Reuben, though, there's always going to be a gulf between the potential of Dan and his achievement. Dan is not mentioned as one of the tribes in Revelation 7, verses 5 through 8. Why is he pulled out and Joseph's sons took take his place? Because they are a deceptive people who exploited others to get what they wanted. That's why he's called in verse 17, a snake beside the road, a viper by the path. By the way, who is one of the great famous judges in the book of Judges who comes from the tribe of Dan? Samson. Samson is from the tribe of Dan. Gad, verse 19, will be raided by marauding bands. Why? Because God puts Gad in a very vulnerable place. They're in a place where it's very easy to be invaded. Yet notice what it says. But he, Gad, will attack them at their heels. In other words, he will persevere and, pers and be persistent and ultimately overcome the adversaries around him. Asher, whose name means blessed, was to me the most physically and materially blessed by God of all the 12 tribes. Notice, Asher's food will be rich and he will provide delicacies to royalty. Asher will be put in a rich and valuable part of the land. Naphtali is a free-running doe. He speaks delightful words. Naphtali is the highland tribe. Zebulun was the tribe by the sea. Naphtali will be the tribes up in the mountains. That's why he talks about the free-running doe up there in the highlands. Who are two judges that come from the tribe of Naphtali? Deborah and Barak come from the tribe of Naphtali. Then you come to Joseph. Outside of Judah, again, maybe the most positive of all the prophecies concerning Jacob's 12 sons. He's the fruitful bow, a fruitful bow near a spring whose branches climb over the wall. He is living out of the overflow of his life. And yes, as we've seen throughout our study of the life of Joseph, archers will attack him. He's going to have his trouble. They will shoot at him and oppose him. But notice what it says in verse 24. But Joseph won't shoot back. His bow will remain steady, strong, and enduring, and his hands will be skillful. And we're going to then study why Joseph had the ability to prevail in spite of all the things against him when we come back to learning about all these different names for God that I'll come back to in just a moment. He goes on to talk about verse 26. The blessings of your father are greater than the blessings of the eternal mountains or the desirable things of the age-old hills. They will be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of the prince of his brothers. And then finally we come to the final brother Benjamin and we might think man Benjamin besides Joseph was one of Jacob's favored sons you'd think he'd have a little bit more something nice to say about his son Benjamin look how he describes Benjamin he's a ravenous wolf 
in the morning, devouring the prey, and in the evening, dividing the plunder. But what this is speaking of, it's not necessarily characterizing the tribe of Benjamin in a negative way, just, just simply saying, the, the people of the tribe of Benjamin, they're fighters. They're, they're warriors. They're strong people. They're, they're no one to mess with, if you will. And I want to give you three of the more famous people who came from the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul, King Saul's son Jonathan, remember, the best friend of David, and then the one we probably all know best, Paul, the apostle Paul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. So again, these are prophecies about certain aspects of all the 12 tribes, where they're going to be located in the land, and some of what's going to happen to them in the future. Some of it because of what they've done in the past, but others just because it's God's destiny for them as that particular tribe. Again, how encouraging would this have been to those enslaved in Egypt to read these words that our future is not in Egypt. It's in the promised land. Think about that in our context. When we read the word of God about our future home, about a place called heaven, about glory, and we realize that, my goodness, this earth is not all there is for us. We have a future homeland that we are aspiring to and living every day to invest in. We don't have to get caught up in, in the world and, and sink our roots down deep here because we're just pilgrims and strangers in this land and we are just passing through very temporarily on our way to our permanent home. It gives us hope. It gives us encouragement. It gives us comfort. The same thing was true with the people that were reading these words in Egypt the very first time Moses wrote these words down. And one of the things also that gave encouragement and strength to these people were the names of God that are given here in this chapter. There are seven of them. I don't think that's an accident. Seven is the number of completeness or perfection in the Bible, and God is certainly perfect and complete. I want to go back then to begin this study of the names of God in verse 10, the verse about the Messiah. The phrase to whom it belongs literally is the Hebrew word and name for God, Shiloh. It was a name that was used in reference to the coming Messiah. In fact, if you have a net Bible, you will see at the end of the word belongs, the little word D, and if you go down to the reference, it says Hebrew, Shiloh. Shiloh is the one who will rule the nations. To whom does what belong? The next phrase in verse 10, the nations will obey him. Shiloh, the name means the nations are the one who rules the nations. You and I can be encouraged by that today. We learned that in Daniel. Who rules over the kingdoms of men and the nations of this world? Not the earthly rulers. Shiloh, our God, rules in the kingdom of men and rules over the nations of this world. Shiloh should be an encouragement to us. Up then in verse 8, 17, 
Yeshua, or excuse me, 18. Yeshua is the next name for God. One of the reasons we know that Jacob here is speaking the words of God is because verse 18, right smack dab in the middle of these prophecies, is really referencing Jacob is in communion and fellowship with God as he's speaking. He says, I wait for your deliverance, Lord. The word deliverance is the word Yeshua, which means victory and salvation. It is in its Old Testament form, the name Joshua. God saves, or salvation is of the Lord, or is of God. And the New Testament form of this name, Yeshua, is Jesus. Jesus. Joshua, Jesus, Yeshua. God is the God of victory, the God of deliverance, the God of salvation. He is Shiloh. He is Yeshua. Then, coming down to the prophecy of Joseph, his bow will remain steady, his hands will be skillful because he will prevail because God is his source. God is his strength. Notice, because of the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, it is the Hebrew name for God, Abir, A-B-I-R, Abir. It means that God is the strong one, or he is the strength of Joseph and of Jacob. And guess what? Abir can be our strength. He is our strength of life. He is the strong one, the one in whom there is all strength. That's why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. David was strengthened in his God. Abir, the mighty one. The next name, Raha, the shepherd. R-A-A-H. Raha. He is my shepherd. In fact, keep your finger in Genesis 48 and go back to Genesis 48 15, or Genesis 49, and go back to Genesis 48, 15, just one chapter before. Jacob is speaking here. He says, Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Jacob is saying, God has been my shepherd. Think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd Read Psalm 23. He's your shepherd too. Think of what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He is Shiloh. He is Yeshua. He is Abir. He is Raha. He is also Aben, the rock, back in chapter 49, verse 24. The rock of Israel, Aben, E, capital E, H, Dash, B-E-N, Aben, the rock. God is our rock. We could have no stronger or firmer foundation. We've talked about that through our study of Isaiah. 
Where do God's people stand in a world of shifting sand? We stand on the rock of God. He is our rock every day. He is solid. And what's very interesting, too, is this word in the Hebrew means from what we can build upon. There is no one better to build upon than God. That's why Paul takes up this concept to the Corinthians and says there's only one cornerstone in which we can build. That's Jesus Christ. Everything, everything we build in our life must be built on the cornerstone and the rock of Jesus Christ. He is our stone. He is our rock. He is our stability. He's our firmness. Aben, the rock. Verse 25, the next. He is Aiel. A-Y-I-L. Aiel, because he is the God of your father. Verse 25. The one and only true God. The great God of your father. It speaks, Aiel, about the greatness of God. The transcendence of God. That God is the one and only and there's no other like him. And by adding he is the God, Aeel, of your father, it's also reminding us he's faithful because he's been faithful throughout all generations. To every generation he has been Aeel, the great God. And finally, the last name for God, one we're probably a little bit more familiar with, he is Shaddai the sufficient almighty God. Notice again verse 25. Because of the God of your fathers who will help you. I love that. He's this great God who's wanting and willing to help us. Because of the sovereign God, should I, who will bless you with blessings from the sky above and even blessings from the deep that lies below and blessings of the breasts and the womb. Blessings all around. He is Shaddai, the sufficient, almighty God. Almighty, nothing too hard or difficult for him. With what is impossible for us is never impossible with God. He is all-sufficient. Everything we will ever need or want, we can find within him. Paul says to the, to the Colossians, you are complete in Jesus Christ. Complete. We lack nothing. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. So I hope that going over these names of God that were included in this prophecy will also be an encouragement and strength to us today because it certainly was to God's people, especially those who first read these words thousands of years ago. But I, I want to end with this. Verse 29 through 33, the last part of this great chapter. Here we find Jacob instructions to his sons. He instructed them, I am about to go to my people. Again, I love that description of death. First of all, death isn't the end, right? And guess what? I'm going to be reunited with my peeps. I'm going back to my people, and we're all going to be together. Bury me there, not here. Bury me there with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. 
It is the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought for a burial plot from Ephron the Hittite. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were acquired from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob finished giving these instructions to his sons, he pulled his feet up on his bed, breathed his last breath, and went to his people. Couple things. Jacob is trusting in the promises of God even at the gates of death. He is pointing his sons by giving them these instructions about his burial. He is pointing his sons to the promises of God. That's what he's doing. He's not just giving his sons burial or memorial service instructions by telling them, take me back to there. He's pointing his sons to the promises of God. That's what you and I need to do. We need to be people as we live our life that point people to the promises of God. And especially as we're right there at the gates of death, we need to die in faith like we talked about in Hebrews 11. We need to live in faith and we need to die in faith. We need to go out with our boots on and be pointing people to the Lord and to his promises even as we leave this world and go to glory. Jacob is absolutely confident that God is going to bring his people out of the land of Egypt one day and into the promised land, or else he would not have given his sons this instruction to bury him there rather than in Egypt. I want you to think about something as we get ready to close tonight. I want you to picture for me a little graveyard because that's what this was. There were only a few people buried there right now, right? Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Leah. Jacob is soon going to join them. Not many people. It's just a little graveyard. No, no. It's a field of faith. Now, as we talked about in Isaiah a couple weeks ago. God's ways are not our ways. And throughout the word of God, one of the things that we see that God chose to be a place of hope for his people that probably we would have never chosen is burial plots. God is saying to his people, that little graveyard there should be a place of hope. That should be a place that encourages and strengthens your faith because I will bring you back there one day. Do you know, this isn't the last time God used a burial place as a place of hope, is it? Because there's an empty tomb that God has said throughout the last couple thousand years to his people, that burial site should be your place of hope. There's not anyone left in that burial site. He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. And Jesus said, because I live, you will live as well. I am the resurrection and the life. I want my burial place the place where they laid me in that tomb, and I was dead. I want that to be a place of hope. And folks, you and I can live and die the same way. 
Our burial place, our little graveyard can be a field of faith and a place of hope for those that are left behind. They can look at where we died and how we died and all that, knowing that where we lay, that's not where we're at. That's not where we're at. And we know that there's more for us than just this ground and this earth that we've got a homeland waiting on us. God wants all of our burial places to be places of hope and fields of faith because he used his own son's burial place to be our place of hope. Remember, Jacob curled up in that bed and he breathed his last breath and went to be with his people. But remember something. Remember this truth. I'll leave you with this. Death is not an accident. According to the Bible, Hebrews 9, 27, death is an appointment. It is appointed by our God when we die. And all of us have an appointment. God wants us not only as his people then to live in faith or live by faith, he wants us like the patriarchs to die in faith to go, oh, there's so much more ahead for me. In fact, the best is yet to come. May our life be a place of hope for people, but also may our burial, our memorial, where we are buried be also a place of hope and a field of faith for others. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that we have so much to look forward to, God. That for your people, the best is always yet to come. For the people in Jacob's day, they needed to realize that their life, their future was not in Egypt. It was in Canaan. And God, for us, our future's not here. Our future's in glory. And may we be reminded of that. May it shape our lives and the way we live our lives every single day. May we trust in your promises. And may we realize, Lord, that even your names can be such a strength to us as we think about you as Shiloh and Yeshua and, and the rock and the shepherd of our life and all these different things, God, may we personally apply them to, uh, to our walk with you as well. And may they encourage us every day because the God that was this God to them is the same God who is this God to us. You are our rock. You are our shepherd. You are our almighty, all-sufficient one. You are our salvation and deliverance and victory. You are everything to us and more, God, and may we never forget that so that we can honor you and bring you glory every day of our lives. Thank you, God, for bringing us together. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. See you next week. God bless.